You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Well, hey team. Uh, hello and good morning, UBC, if you're here in person or if you're with us online. Uh, we're so glad you're here this morning. Uh, before I introduce myself and we get going with the sermon today, um, would you pray with me? God, whose spirit hovers over the waters, would you move amongst us? Would you let the words that are yours stick? And would you let what is not from you fall away? We love you, and we ask that um, you're with us in all of our thoughts this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I am sorry to say that you are all fortunate enough to be stuck with me this morning. Uh, If you're sitting there wondering to yourself, oh, hey, Kieran's not normally up here. Uh, I wonder what his preaching style is like. Uh, Well, I'm also excited to find that out, uh, because this is actually the first time that I've ever preached anywhere. So uh, if I start to rush ahead, (laughs) you're too kind. (laughs) So if I start to rush ahead, or if I get a little caught up in my words, uh, I hope you'll go easy on me uh, and stick with me as we go on together. So... For those of you who are actually just wondering who on earth even is this person to begin with, uh, let me do a brief introduction. My name is Kieran, and I am the youth pastor here at UBC. And I think we have a slide. That's me. I was born in England, in the UK. I tried to pick the most British picture I could, so it's tiny me wearing about a thousand layers in a forest. Uh, Hence the ridiculous accent. Uh, And I've been living in the US for the last three years or so uh, after I moved to Waco to be with my wife, Vanessa. And we live very happily here with our fur baby, Boudicca. There they are. Just so everyone's aware, the, our cat is on the right. Boudicca, my wife, is, is on the left there. Uh, Vanessa and I met in 2014 in St. Andrews, Scotland. And we started dating in 2015 when we were both attending the University of St. Andrews. That's us. The one on the left is the earliest one I could find. And then that's us at graduation. Uh, I thought that I was going a long way to school. Uh, because St. Andrews was 300 miles away from my home in England. Uh, But I soon learned that at St. Andrews, if you didn't take a plane to get there, you hadn't really come a long way at all. Um, And that was the case for Vanessa. She had flown 5,000 miles and jumped eight time zones from California to go to school in Scotland for all four years, where she studied international relations and psychology. She got a master's degree here in Waco at the Diana Garland School of Social Work. And now she works full-time as a social worker at Waco Family Medicine. Um, uh, where she also just finished her two-year supervision to become a licensed clinical social worker. Yeah, exactly. I tell you all of that because I genuinely think she's the most phenomenal person I've ever met, uh, and I love to brag about her, and there's no way that I'm going to waste the opportunity on stage to not talk about her. So there is that. So I studied at at St. Andrews. I studied uh, theology and biblical studies which and it was then and is still the best university in the UK to do that. Uh, and that's where I found my passion for the Old Testament, hence us being back in Jeremiah today. I'm sure everybody is very, very excited. <laughs> so I love Jeremiah for lots of reasons. Um, I became a Christian when I was a teenager, and Jeremiah was sort of randomly the first book of the Bible that I ever read from start to finish. Um, which, by the way, is not how I would recommend starting to anyone else uh, who's out there wondering. Um, And this particular period of history uh, in Israel's story is one that I find 
the most fascinating. Um, but most of all, I love Jeremiah for precisely the same thing that usually gets him a bad reputation, which is how much he complains. I love when Jeremiah whinges. Um, really, I'm being facetious there, uh, because actually what Jeremiah is doing most of the time is grieving. Um, I find Jeremiah to be deeply, deeply human. He hopes and he cries. He's confused. He receives answers and becomes even more confused as a result. He's a person who loves his community and the people around him, and he spends his whole life trying to serve them by speaking the words that God has given to him. Now, obviously, that also frequently lands him in a lot of trouble, uh, just like it already has in our passage today, where we find him confined, which is a polite way of saying under arrest, uh, in the palace of the king in Jerusalem. So most of our passage is dominated by this odd story about a field in the delightfully difficult to say Anathoth. Uh, so I wanted to take a second for us and set this story in its proper time and place. So the year is around 587 before the Common Era, which is over 2,500 years ago. Babylon has come back to finish what it and before them Assyria had started, the conquest and destruction of the kingdom of Judah. Zedekiah, a young man, leads Judah in a desperate attempt to resist the enormous empire, which even now tears through the land. They burn and raise unwalled settlements. They force the people to take refuge inside the walled cities scattered throughout Judah. Once they have them pinned inside, the sieges begin. The people of Judah slowly run out of food, resources, and hope. One by one, the cities fall as Judah holds their breath, waiting for a miracle. What I've done is pulled a couple of other passages from later chapters of Jeremiah here just to help us set the scene so it's not just me talking at you. It's also like, this really happened in the Bible, I promise. Um, a couple of the references are going to look a little bit out of order. It's because Jeremiah jumps around a little bit as a book, so don't be put off by that. So I will read for us now. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon, and in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came with all his army against Jerusalem, and they laid siege to it. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke words of prophecy to Zedekiah, king of Judah, in Jerusalem, when the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem and against all the cities of Judah that were left, Lachish and Azekah, for these were the only fortified cities of Judah that remained. And then this next verse in Jeremiah 32 is where our passage today begins. So we're about one year into the Babylonian siege, and we're about one year away from the destruction of Jerusalem. More words of prophecy came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of King Zedekiah of Judah. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and the prophet Jeremiah was confined in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah, where King Zedekiah of Judah had confined him. And then one last set of verses just here. And this details kind of the fall of Jerusalem and the end of the story that our passage is yet to experience. The city was besieged until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine became so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. And then a breach was made in the city wall and all the soldiers fled and went out from the city by night. 
with the army of the Chaldeans, which is the Babylonians, uh, pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered, deserting him. And then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. In the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard who served the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. All the army of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, who were with the captain of the guard, broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile some of the poorest of the people and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had defected to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the artisans. And that was it. They had waited on a miracle that never came, and then they were taken into exile for 50 years. One of the walled cities that was mentioned at the start of our passages was called Azekar, and I have some slides from Azekar uh, up on the thing here. So I was lucky enough when I was in university to take part in an archaeological dig there. I did one summer while I was at university, so that top picture is some of the outer walls that overlook the foothills. This is the wall of the city on the left, the very same walls that the Babylonians were trying to tear down. Uh, and then on the right, this is really cool. So Azekar is located in a region of Israel that overlooks the foothills where David hid from Saul when he was being persecuted by Saul and looked for. Uh, and this plain, actually, you can see that field there is also supposed to be the site of the battle between David and Goliath as well. So it's a, it's a deeply important town, both for us as Christians looking at you know, history, but also within Israel itself. Um, I also got to visit Lachish, which was the other city that was mentioned. So here on the left, you can see the ramp that would originally have gone up to the gatehouse and a couple of the ruined buildings just here. Lachish is known in the archaeological world for a particular artifact that was found there. It was a letter, part of a series that was discovered on the site. Uh, I think I've got a picture of it here. Yeah, so this is a board from the actual um, uh, site of Lachish. So it's written in ink on a shard of clay pottery. It's a pretty normal letter for the most part. It seems to be a junior officer reporting to a senior, assuring them that all their orders have been carried out. They talk a little bit about a scouting party um, and a transportation detail for a prisoner. But right at the very end comes the most haunting part and the reason that it's so significant. The officer finishes the letter by saying that they will be watching the signals from Lachish from now on because they can no longer see the signal fires from Azakar. This is a moment in time, a snapshot from the very end of the war with Babylon. Azakar has just fallen, and they're no longer sending signal fires. Not long afterwards, we know that Lachish falls and Jerusalem a short time after that. Zedekiah is 30 years old when Jerusalem first comes under siege, and he's only 32 when it finally falls. I thought that detail is significant because I think we often think of everybody in the Bible as like old men with gigantic beards. Um, and uh, I, even I forget, and when I read that Zedekiah was 21 when he became king, it's like, as young, I'm 27. You know, he, uh, what he's facing is terrifying and he's really young. So why am I talking so much about this? What is the point of this background information? I don't want us to miss the reality and the humanity in this story amongst all the names and numbers, which are important but can sometimes get in the way of the narrative. 
It can seem dry or boring, but this is the moment in history that a kingdom falls and a people lose their home. These are people just like us who hope and feel and worry and pray. They are the people of God, and surely throughout those two years as the Babylonians encircled them like sharks, surely they prayed for a miracle. It would make a great story, right? You know, they wait and wait, and then just when things seem most bleak, there's a clap of thunder and a flash of lightning, and the earth opens up to swallow the Babylonians. But that isn't what happens. Instead, the very worst thing that could have happened, happens. I wonder if that has ever happened in your life. When the writing's on the wall and you're hoping and praying for a long time, or maybe it just suddenly happens out of the blue, that the worst thing that could possibly happen, happens. What are we supposed to do when it does? Well, I'd like us to return to our passage now. I'm going to read the verses that I skipped over before. So again, this is one year into that siege that we know, and it's about a year until the fall of Jerusalem. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of your uncle Shalom, is going to come to you and say, buy my field that is, Anath- that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. And then my cousin Hanamel came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel, and I weighed out the silver to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, weighed the silver on the scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchasing containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. In their presence, I charged Baruch, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and the open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar in order that they may last a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Does it feel different now that we've set it against the backdrop of everything we know? I feel the magnitude of this promise uh, so much more knowing what is about to happen to them, knowing that the reason that there were so many people, uh, Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard is because everybody from the surrounding countrysides was piled in three deep in Jerusalem uh, as it was under siege. I think Jeremiah knows it too. Notice that he's, he makes sure that he's in a very public place to start conducting a seemingly normal, mundane business deal like they've not been under siege for over, over a year. And when he's done, he tells them why. God told him to make this contract and to make sure it would last a long time because he's promising that they will return to their land and their lives will be renewed. I don't know why bad things happen. Not really. None of us do. For all of our theology and our philosophy, when the worst things happen, those academic explanations and convoluted theories aren't a comfort. All I know for sure is that bad things do happen. But I also know from passages like this that God doesn't just abandon us 
when they do happen. I want to be really careful here that I don't come across as trite. I am not for one second advocating for some cookie-cutter platitude that fails to see and acknowledge the very real pain and suffering that we experience. What I do want to do is to speak about the fundamental truth of the presence of God in our lives. No matter what happens or why it happens, the one thing we're told over and over and over again in the Bible is that God won't just abandon us. It might be hard to see him. We might be so angry or scared or sad or lost that it feels impossible to see him. But he promises that even when we can't see him, he sees us. Even when we don't feel him with us, he is there. When we sit and cry, he cries with us. And when we shout and scream, he holds us and he listens and listens and listens. One of the other um, texts from the liturgy, liturgy this week uh, is from Psalm 91. And it reads to me so beautifully as God holding us in this question of what do we do when the worst things happen. And let me read it for us now. You who live in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the hunter and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a defense. You will not fear the terror of the night or the arrow that flies by day or the pestilence that stalks in darkness or the destruction that wastes at noonday. Those who love me, I will deliver. I will protect those who know my name. When they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. With long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. Notice here that it doesn't say that we won't ever face trouble. What it does say is that God promises to be with us in that trouble. It's a constant reassurance to us that even when there aren't answers, there is always, always relationship to be found with God. When we need him to be in the room, he's there. When we need him to wait just outside the door, that's where he stands. When we need him to hold us, he stretches out his pinions, the pinions of his wings and holds us closer than we've ever been held before. Despite the fact that I'm up here saying all of this, and I believe in it with 100% of my whole heart, I still have my frustrations. My own experience of grief and anxiety and heartbreak, they leave me angry and sad and tired. Sometimes when I just can't feel or see or hear God, I try to let it be enough for even a small part of myself to simply acknowledge that he is and that I trust him when he says he loves me. Let's pray together, UBC. Mother God, who covers us in her wings and in whose shadow we find shelter, may you answer us when we call to you. May you rescue us and honor us. 
May you help us not to fear the terror of the night or the arrow that flies by day. May you give us what we need to trust your love for us in whatever parts of ourselves that can hold on to that. May we see you, hear you, and feel you. And when all else fails, may we simply know you. Would you go with us as we leave this place today, and may we find you where you are. And in all the names of God, I pray. Amen. At the conclusion of the preaching portion of our service, we like to leave time for the Holy Spirit to move. Um, perhaps the Spirit will correct something that I've said incorrectly, or perhaps the Spirit will minister something new. So let's listen together now. <laughs>